The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. So thankful for all who serve here and abroad. I'm thankful for the ministry of, of music. I'm I'm really thankful for the words of the song that we just sang, which has kind of been a theme song in studying God's law and the Ten Commandments. And the lyrics of the law of God is good. Come right out of Romans 7. Here's one of the verses. So the law is holy and righteous and good. And then verse 22, Paul says, I delight or I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner being. And it's been a joy for me, it's been a delight for me to study God's law, but I'll also tell you it's been convicting to my soul studying these things. And here's what Paul said in that same chapter, Romans 7, if it, not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. In other words, he wouldn't have known the depth of it without the law. I would not have known what it is to covet had the law not said, you shall not covet. But sin, he says, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. In other words, as he studied this, he began to see more and more covetousness within him. But that's one of those that's just not intuitive without that commandment, you shall not covet, to know that that's wrong. And at the end of that chapter, Paul says, wretched man that I am. The law has shown him, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus. That's going to be our study here today. We're going to be looking at that command, you shall not covet, in Exodus 20, verse 17. We've been going through this chapter, if you're joining us here this morning. And we're going to see covetousness and the wretchedness that we all can relate to with Paul. But we're also going to see the deliverance that is found in Jesus. And my hope and prayer in this study is this will increase our thankfulness, but also increase our contentedness in Him and what He has done for us. But first, religious, outwardly blameless people, which is what Paul originally considered himself, outwardly blameless according to the law, they need to see their need as wretches in need of grace. Those of you that read Jane Austen may be familiar with one of her lesser-known works, Lady Susan. There was actually a movie made about this a few years ago called Love and Friendship. I didn't read the book, just so you know, but I, I saw a clip from this where there's a rich suitor named Sir James, Sir James Martin who's hoping to court Lady Susan's daughter. And so he goes into the parlor and he's wanting to impress her and the gentlemen who are there with how well-read he is. And he brings up the Bible, and in his own words, quote, Many such accounts one learns from childhood. Perhaps the most significant in forming one's principles is that of the old prophet who came down from the mount with tablets bearing the Twelve Commandments, which our Lord has taught us to obey without fail. <clears throat> the other young man chimes in, Twelve Commandments? Sir James nods and smiles. Excuse me, a wiser old voice chimes in, I believe there were only ten and James says, really? Only ten must be obeyed. Excellent. Well, then, which two to take off? Perhaps the one about the Sabbath. I prefer to hunt. The older man says, well, but he keeps going. 
After that, it becomes tricky. Many of the thou shalt nots don't murder, don't covet thy neighbor's house or wife. One simply wouldn't do anyway because they are wrong, whether the Lord allows us to take them off or not. And they all just kind of stare at this guy. It's pretty funny scene, actually. It's even more funny with a, a real British accent. But the sad truth is that's the way a lot of people actually think about Moses and some of the commandments and stories they heard about when they were little kids. Or maybe they saw a movie in the theater, whether the Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt. But they, they think they're doing pretty good with them. And, and they'd like to maybe take off whatever they think restricts their fun or what they would prefer to do. But most of the rest they think they keep. They don't murder. They don't think they would disobey many of them, even if they don't actually know some of them. And they actually think they can impress others with how they live their life in light of God's commandments. But as we look at Exodus 20, the command against coveting that he quoted is actually one of those commands that condemns us all. This isn't something we simply wouldn't do anyway when we understand what that actually means. We all covet. Today is my 12th sermon on Exodus 20. There's only 10 commandments, but we did an introduction and then two on the fourth commandment. But even if we could take two of the commandments off, we would all be guilty of the heart of every commandment. I think that's one of the big takeaways of this. The Lord is serious about all of them and about number 10, which is where we are today. So look at Exodus 20, verse 17, and this is God's word from heaven. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. This Tenth Commandment stands out in a number of ways, and and it actually should make us all fear. This should bring us all to our knees when we understand that. But even just looking at this commandment in light of the rest or in light of other commandments, Other ancient cultures had many laws like earlier commandments, especially the the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 9. But there's no laws we've found in those law codes against coveting. This is unique. And also, only this one repeats the double negative of the Ten Commandments. You shall not. And then if you look at it, he says it again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet, it's twice there, your neighbor's wife. And he goes on, this is a double emphatic and and dramatic warning to never covet. And this is also unique in that it's the only one that multiplies examples. He could just say, don't covet anything belonging to your neighbors. But he, he gives several examples of what that can look like. This one also stands out from the rest because it goes straight to the heart. The other ones mention outward deeds, and we've seen that Even those in Scripture move outward, inward, but this one starts inward and and is really addressing the the heart of coveting. Here's what the Westminster Larger Catechism describes. It says, We daily break His commands in thought, word, and deed. The Tenth Commandment forbids any dissatisfaction. So here's another word, dissatisfaction, or 
or discontentment with what belongs to us, envy and grief at the success of others, and all improper desire for anything that belongs to someone else. This command requires that we be so completely satisfied with our own status in life or full contentment and have such a proper loving attitude toward others that we are naturally inclined to wish the best for them and all their possessions. I think that's a great summary of the the satisfaction, the contentment that this calls for and how we need to love our neighbor by wishing what's best for them and being happy for them when they are blessed. And so the outline, if you brothers want to pull this up in in the back, just to see where we're going, we're going to look at coveting in God's law, our guilt, and then we're going to look at contentment in Christ, our gospel remedy. But let's start in verse 17 with that first phrase, you shall not covet. The ancient Jews hearing that word covet, who had also heard the early stories of their ancestors, would recognize this from Genesis 3, that all familiar story they would have heard many times, where Eve saw the tree was delightful or desirable or covetable. It's the same root word to the eyes, and then she took from it. And so coveting, seeing with the eyes something that you desire that's not to be yours, that's delightful to the eyes, something you crave and want, and, and even though you shouldn't, you, you want to get it in a way that's not right. That's the, the root word and from the very first sin. And it starts with what we see, what we seek after that God has not given us or apart from God in his word, what he has told us. It can be translated this way, to desire passionately what we take most pleasure in, what we treasure. The scripture reading earlier says, where you treasure, there your heart is. That's the, that's the heart of this command as well. It's our darling, our beloved. It was used of precious gold. Some of you can think of a, a character who speaks of his precious, and he's, he's consumed and, and controlled by this coveting a gold ring. Coveting can make us ugly and scary, grasping, grabbing. I also think of a little girl in Willy Wonka's factory who's just wanting what she wants, and she wants it now. But we, see, we see this in little kids, don't we? We don't have to train them in this like the other things. They, they see another toy that another kid has. Maybe they're happy with their toy, but all of a sudden they see this kid has that toy, and they want it, and they grab for it. But for the earliest readers of this book, they could have also looked back, not just on their children or their own childhood, they could have looked back to the story of Father Abraham. When he parted ways with Lot, Lot looked and he saw the grass was greener on the other side of the river and he chose that land of Sodom and Gomorrah because it looked like a a better land to move to and to live in. God had to send men to rescue Lot. And if you remember that story, the, the Sodomites there were coveting those men. They became violent when they didn't have what they wanted, and the family had to be dragged away. And as they're being dragged away, Lot's wife turns, and she looks back, and she's looking back and coveting. They're, they're leaving. Judgment and fire is coming down, but she's thinking about her life back there in, in Sodom, and she's looking back, coveting, and she gets turned to a pillar of 
salt, and it's a warning even in the words of Jesus to not be like Lot's wife, to not look back, because coveting can, can turn us sinfully. And we could go to Abraham's side. Sarah coveted a, coveted a son and was willing to do what was not right and was not God's promise to have her maid, Hagar, be the one to produce and bear her child. That was acceptable in their culture, but not God's way. And, and even to this day, the Ishmaelites and the descendants of Abraham have been in conflict ever since as a result of that sin of coveting and not doing it God's way and God's timing. Their grandson, Jacob, also with his wife, Rachel, it says, Genesis 31, when Rachel, Genesis 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. That's a related word. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Envy or jealousy for what you see others have and that you don't is the heart of coveting. It can be whatever you think you must have for life to be worth living. That's the heart of coveting. Whatever you think you can't live without or just can't imagine that you would even want to keep going if you didn't have that, if you have it now. Whatever you say, I must have. You turn your greed into a need. Coveting is a corrupting and controlling I need when it's not something God has defined as a need. Thomas Watson calls it an insatiable desire for getting. Think of more, wanting more, bigger and better. You're not being satisfied with your season or station in life. It's being possessed by what you don't possess. I think it was Vodi Bakken who said, it's not wrong to have things. What's wrong is when things have us. And in this context, other people's things. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, if you fill in this blank, if only I had, you fill in the blank, I would be happy. Think of the person, place, or thing you think you can't live without that you must have what is in the blank for you coveting is desiring what god hasn't given us but has given others it can become an excessive or an obsessive yearning or hankering is maybe an old word we don't use as much today that i think is a good word hankering for things it's not a sin necessarily to want some thing what's Sinful is wanting someone else's things. Longing or lusting after someone else's people, possessions, or position. It doesn't have to be material things. Another word for coveting is craving. Especially when you're craving something too strongly or, or wrongly. The issue isn't desire. Desire itself can be neutral. It's discontentment. That's the issue. It's not wrong to want a house. It's not wrong to want a spouse if you're not yet married. But this is the wrong way, the wrong time, for the wrong reason. At what expense, we have to ask. Are we, gonna, are we willing to do anything? Maybe it's credit card debt so your family can live outside your means. They didn't have that in the original context, but here's how it showed up for the Israelites, it showed up in their grumbling. 
They were in Egypt because their forefathers had coveted silver and they sold Joseph there for 30 pieces of silver. Remember, that's how the descendants of Abraham first got there. Joseph, God ultimately worked that for good, even though it was evil, what they had done. He brought them there, but then they became slaves. God is delivering them from slaves in the storyline here, but as God delivers them on the way, they're coveting what they had back in Egypt. They're coveting the food of Egypt. They're coveting a different leader than Moses. They even coveted dying in Egypt instead of where God had them. They were discontent with that miraculous manna. Every day he's doing this miracle to provide for them food, but they're coveting the leeks and the onions and the garlics and those meat pots where they thought they were satisfied back there. In Exodus 16.3, their cry is, If only we had... And when we complain like that, we're revealing coveting going on inside of us. Grumbling reveals what we're coveting. Grumbling reveals what we are coveting. We're not happy with where we are in life. We're ultimately not happy with what God has given us. And we think we have a better plan and a better way than what God has done. It can be health that you used to have or others have or that you wish you had. It can be help around the house you crave. It can be all kinds of things that we grumble about. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10 says of the days of Moses and their grumbling. These things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave as they also craved, nor grumble, he goes on, this is part of it, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. When they were grumbling, they were destroyed. This is a destructive sin. It says these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed that he does not fall. In context, that includes coveting, grumbling, as well as other sins that those lead to. Here's how 1 John 2.15 says it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't have an agape love for the world, the kind of love that you're to have for the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't love anything in the world that way. Be the cravings of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, the pride that says, I deserve better. Other words for coveting would be consumerism, materialism. Look at Exodus 20, verse 17 again, just the examples he gives here. Here's, he's multiplying examples. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. That's not just the physical structure. In fact, at this point, a lot of them didn't have permanent structures. They were intense. They were still moving. They were nomads. But it's the idea of the, the household, anything that is theirs. It's the other side of the fence where the grass looks greener. You may like what you see, but you may not like to see their mortgage bill or their other issues. A family may look great here on Sunday, and you think, well, I just wish I had a family like that. You don't see what it's like behind closed doors Monday to Saturday. You don't want your neighbor's household conflict. You don't want your neighbor's crisis. You don't want your neighbor's credit card debt. Don't covet by comparing your lot in life to what you see on TV 
doesn't have to be HGTV. It's just things you see. I mean, there's so much on screens before us that can make us covet about things we weren't even thinking about till we see it. Don't covet by complaining that you live in a dump, not the decorated designer home that you desire. And remember, so much of what we see on the screen is fake, it's false, and it fuels discontentment. We need to be careful. Guard our hearts. And verse 17 says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. This is the same word in Proverbs 6.25. It's translated, do not lust after her beauty in her heart, in your heart. Coveting someone else's spouse isn't just visual, though. We talked about that in the commandment against adultery, but it can also be craving verbal affirmation, might be one. She may crave more emotional stimulation that she doesn't get from her husband. Men may want more physical intimacy from a wife. A wife may want more emotional intimacy, and there can be different degrees and all that. Some crave connection or appreciation, and you perceive another marriage has that and you don't have that. Or maybe it's just, I wish my wife was like, or a wife says, I wish my husband was like. Someone imagines how that, what that might look like. Look at her husband. He helps around the house. He fixes things. He doesn't just break things like my husband. Craving your spouse can be craving what he or she is not. Coveting a, a Better spouse, though, can make you a bitter spouse. And what the New Testament says is conflict in marriage has coveting at its core, or any family conflict. James 4 says the cause of quarrels is this, your desires, the things that you're passionate about. You want something, but don't get it. And and want there is the Greek word used in the Tenth Commandment, in the translation the Greek translation of it, James goes on, you covet, but you cannot have what you want, so you fight and quarrel. So coveting is behind our quarreling, according to James. And then James 4.15 says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will have this or that. There's nothing wrong with having plans, wanting to make a profit there at the end of James 4, wanting to plan for the future, wanting to provide Those things aren't wrong, but we need to say with that, if it's the Lord's will, rather than insist, my will be done. My way and my timing. To stop coveting, James 4 says, there needs to be a humbling of ourselves before God and his sovereign will. James 4 says we need to resist the devil. We need to recognize it's it's the devil that is tempting us to discontent. We need to submit to God, James says. Says We need to ask him to cleanse our hearts so that we're not double-minded. Ask him to change us as we repent, as we mourn the sin. Among other sins, Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, and it gives a list of sins. The last one is covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. It's not just like idolatry. It's idolatrous, whatever we most prioritize, we idolize, and that's what coveting does. And then Exodus twenty seventeen adds servants and oxen, which most of your neighbors don't have, although we are here out in the country. Uh, Cliff and Sue Peppers did have a donkey, but I, I, I don't think I ever coveted their donkey per se, but, but maybe you covet your neighbor's Dodge truck. You know, maybe instead of oxen, it's his awesome 
property and how well it's taken care of, or instead of his servants, it's just something else that, that you see about that neighbor. Verse 17 says, with anything another has. It could be envying vacations that they get to take, and you, you know, you're lucky if you can go to grandma's. You open Instagram, and you're now instantly coveting some of the fun you see other people have. Like the little kids saying, I wish I was taller. I wish I had a girl I would call her. We can just multiply all kinds of things. I wish I had this. You scroll through Facebook, and now you're jealous of those smiling faces and friends you're not with. Oh, I wish I was like them. They smile all the time. No, they're just smiling for that picture. But, but we think, oh, I'm missing out. We, we covet likes and comments and followers and friends more than really coveting us being a real friend in person to one of those people. You understand internet and TV ads are designed to make you covet and they make money because they're effective. That's the whole reason. That's how so much is paid for in our world, this principle of coveting what we see. Your smartphone screen tempts you to covet and even to be discontent without the newer smartphone that this guy had. You were happy with yours till you saw the one he had. I can covet watching highlights of a sport I love at times more than talking to loved ones nearby. We, we can covet our literal world and we can miss the world around us and those needing our presence. I am convicted of that. God, help us to not let small screens control us. We can be so consumed with small dreams and lesser things that are addicting and are, are crippling. Phil Riken says what we usually call chasing the American dream, the Bible calls it coveting. Someone asked the billionaire Nelson Rockefeller how much money it takes to be happy, how much money it took him to be happy, and his answer was just a little bit more. That's the answer, a little more. There's, there's got to be more. The rich Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. I mean, don't we see this with sports stars and celebrities who have everything and their lives are destroyed and, and depressed and on, on drugs because they're, they're not finding what they thought they would find in having everything. He says, coveting is what causes that little twinge of disappointment. Whenever someone else gets what we want, we're always comparing ourselves to others and Frankly, we resent what they have. It might be their age, their looks, their brains, or their talents, their situation in life, their marriage, or singleness, or, or children, or if only I had a, a different body type, or if only I didn't have this bodily struggle, or if I only had, had this or didn't have this, we say, if only people would recognize, if only my spouse would do a better job of meeting my needs, if only my boss, we, we could multiply all kinds of things, but we're not learning the secret of what Paul learned that we're going to get to. Here's a, a poem that kind of sums it up. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. That's what we see right now. It was fall, but some of you are thinking it's winter I want. Christmas time, beautiful snow, the joy of all of that. It, it was winter, this person says, but it was spring I wanted, the, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child and it was adulthood I wanted. 
the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. And the poem ends, my life was over and I never got what I wanted. And I, we see that, don't we? It says it poetically, what tragically can be the reality that coveting leaves us empty, it leaves us discontent, it leaves us dissatisfied. John Piper tells a story of a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast when he was 59 and she was 51, and now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, they play softball, and they collect shells. And he said as he, he, read, that, he read that, he thought it might be a spoof, but then he realizes tragically this is the, the dream. Come to the end of your life, he writes, your one and only precious God-given life, and let this be the last great work of your life. Before you give an account to your creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shells. He says that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Picture them before Christ on the day of judgment saying, look, Lord, look at my shell collection. This is what I did with the life you gave me. Look at these shells, and and I've been working on my swing. I'm getting real good at it, Lord. He says, that is a tragedy, and there are people out there spending billions of dollars to try to get you to buy that and embrace that tragic dream. And John Piper said, this was to, I think, 50,000 young people. He says, don't buy it. I'm pleading with you, don't buy that dream. There's a desire for something infinitely great and beautiful and valuable and soul-satisfying, God-centered, Christ-exalting scripture to set you free from small dreams and to send you forth for the glory of Christ into all the spheres of secular life and to all the peoples of the earth. That's from his book, Don't Waste Your Life. Don't waste your life coveting American dreams. And so we need to move from this, from coveting our guilt to contentment in Christ, the gospel remedy. And this is where we need Christ. We all need this. And Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Christ on the cross, and it says, the afflicted will be satisfied. They're going to seek him, and they're going to be satisfied in him. That's talking about when Messiah would come, when Christ would die on the cross. They're going to seek him. They're going to be satisfied in him. What would you rather have? Would you rather have Jesus or houses and lands? Would you rather be led by his nail-pierced hand? That's the question before us, and we don't even have to yet go to the New Testament because this word in the law for covet is used in the Old Testament. It's used in the, the greatest prophecy of Jesus in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 verse 2 talks about Messiah who would come. And it says this about Messiah. There would be nothing in his appearance that would be desirable to us or covetable to us. Same, same root word there. there. There was nothing delightful or beautiful or attractive about his, his physical appearance that made him set out from others. There was nothing that we would covet about him. But yet he comes and that chapter says, for our ugly and undesirable sin, he becomes the guilt 
offering the guilt substitute. He, he dies in our place. He takes on the cross the, the crushing wrath that I deserve for all of my coveting wrongly and all the other commandments I violate. He, Isaiah 53, you can read that later, but he goes to chapter 55 and he says this, Why do you spend your money? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy He says, why do you spend your life for what's never going to satisfy you? But he says, listen, come to me. He says, delight yourselves in in abundance, in the the richest of fare. If you will come to me, if you will seek the Lord while he may be found, if you will forsake your sinful ways and come to me, there's abundance to satisfy souls that seek Jesus. And then it says at the end of that chapter that we will go out with joy. There's true joy that's only found in him. It's not found in anything in the world. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The desires in and of themselves aren't, aren't wrong, but they need to be redefined and refined by his word. And as we delight in him, he's going to align us with the desires that he will give to us. Here's what some of the psalms say. God satisfies your desires with good. He satisfies the longing soul. Another psalm says, They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. You give from the river of your pleasures. I love that image. And Jesus picks up on all that language when he says, Whoever comes to me will will never hunger again. Whoever believes in me will will never thirst and, and crave again. He offered the woman at the well not only living water, He also offered to her the love that she had not found in five men and the one who's not her husband who she's living with. He is offering to her himself and she becomes a believer and she goes and she testifies to the other Samaritans and they come and she becomes one of the first who really understands he is indeed the Savior of the world. Jesus satisfied the thousands when he fed them and it says in the text that they were abundantly satisfied. They had more than they needed. They had leftovers, basketfuls. He's the Lord who is our shepherd. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what want, which means lack. There's nothing I, I, I will need. He, he fills my cup so that it, what? it overflows or runneth over. If he is your portion, you can say to him, Psalm 73, 25. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. But to do that, we've got to seek him first, as Jesus said. We've got to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And all that we truly need, he will add. But he calls you and me to turn from sins that we covet and to crave him alone, to treasure him alone as Lord and Savior. He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's the tagline for desiring God. And it fits with this exactly. Can you say, I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause? I have to ask myself that. Would I rather have Jesus than men's applause? Would I rather be faithful no matter what to his dear cause? I, I, I hope I can say yes, but there's times where I need his help in that. But he's all that our hungering spirit needs. 
if we would rather have him and let him lead. He came to a wicked generation who he said craved signs. They craved signs. He came to a sinful world where men coveted, quote, the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's our world too, isn't it? That was their world then, but that's, that's us. We want the approval of men sometimes more than the approval of God. So Luke twelve fifteen, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, I will, I will tear down my barns. We actually had a, a barn we had to tear down at our house yesterday uh, for a different reason. It was falling apart. But this guy thinks, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. In other words, you're going to die this night, and the things that you have prepared, where will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Maybe you've heard the saying, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. When, when you die, there's nothing you're taking with you. Don't be foolish. This night, this day, your soul could be required Are you ready? Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you trusting what you've done? Or are you trusting what he's done for you? You're not ready unless you're trusting and treasuring him alone, what he has done for you. This one who was fully God and is fully God, Jesus, was also fully man. And he was fully tempted in every way, including coveting. He knew this experientially. Hebrews says every, he can sympathize with our temptations because he was tempted in every way, but he didn't sin. Remember 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and the, desert, the devil comes to him and tells him to turn these stones into bread. The physical craving that Jesus would have had for bread at that time would have been unbelievable. But he's being tempted to wrongly satisfy his hunger. It wasn't yet... The Father's will for him to eat. And so he replies, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God was sufficient for him. And he's giving us a model there that it can be sufficient for us in any temptation. As we turn to it, as we can say it is, it is written, as we hide it in our hearts so we may not sin by coveting in other ways. Jesus, in that same occasion, didn't covet the kingdoms of this world in the wrong way when Satan offered them. Philippians 2 says, instead of grasping, Jesus was content to humble himself, to empty himself. He gave up heaven's riches to live in poverty and obscurity, to live a single life. He was never married. He, was, he had siblings who were against him. Even into his adulthood, his, his siblings are saying he's out of his mind. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. If you had a place to lay your head last night and tonight, praise the Lord. The Lord who had no place to lay his head, who had to daily depend on the kindness of others to care for him and had a, a team of women who were providing for his needs. The Lord of glory 
even had less than foxes have. And in Gethsemane, he was tempted, not by the physical things, but thinking of the wrath of God that he's going to experience on the cross. He's tempted in a moment of weakness to say, Father, I, is there any other way? Is, if it's possible, could, could this cup pass from me? He's, he's genuinely struggling there with this this cup of wrath that he knows he's going to have to drink. Not so much the nails going into his flesh or being whipped and all that he knew what was coming, but knowing what he was going to have to face in those hours and that darkness when he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he knows that's coming and he's asking, is there any other way? But ultimately he submits himself to the Father's will, not as I will, but as you Will. That's what we need to look to when we're struggling. That night, when he was betrayed by a coveter, Judas, who had been coveting and taking money from the money bag, and then ultimately for 30 pieces of silver, I think it was, denies the Lord in the garden there. And on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. He he was genuinely thirsty and craving something to drink, but he drinks down the wrath that we deserve. And then he also says on the cross, Father, forgive them. I mean, that's the hope for us in any of our sins, in any of our violations of the commandments, to look to Christ. The only way to be forgiven is by repenting and receiving what he did for us on the cross. And so turn to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want to see how Jesus, through the gospel, can transform a coveter. I started in Romans 7, the start of this message, where Paul says the law revealed all kinds of covetousness that, that killed him. And Paul would say the law is a schoolmaster. It's to lead us to Christ and amazing grace for wretches like him and me. Grace can transform us who have coveted to be contented in Christ. This is what we see in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Those are genuine needs. He says, If we have those with these, we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Money isn't wrong, but it's the love of money that is the root, verse 10, of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves. This is the way we destroy ourselves. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age... There are people God has blessed richly. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. If God has blessed you, don't think you're better than others. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. You can't just depend on that, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. That's all of us. God richly blesses us, not just with what we need, but then some to enjoy But rich people are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Being generous 
is a gospel remedy for the covetous. Those ready to share. That's one of the ways to escape this snare. To be committed and and ready to, to share when we can with others. And that includes giving yourself in serving others. Even if you don't have a lot more else to give. Who are you serving? What are you serving? How are you serving? There's people you can share with and encourage, share encouraging things with even here today. But serve and share with. Be a giver, not a taker. The content love neighbors, not their money. Our great gain is in godliness with contentment. And God can change our wrong greed to righteous giving. Here's what Proverbs 21, 26 says. He covets, this is a wicked person, he covets greedily all day long, but the righteous gives and does not spare. Or another translation, all day long he craves and he craves, but the righteous gives. And again, that's, that can be giving of whatever God blesses us with, but also if God has blessed you with health and the ability to serve, we need your We need your help. We need your service in the body of Christ. We need your hospitality. We need your involvement in our various ministries as well. But change comes in his word and prayer. Here's a prayer to pray. Psalm 119, 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Our hearts can be inclined to so many things. I know mine can. This is a prayer. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Is another word for your words, what you have to say, and not to what I want. So if you would turn back to Philippians 4, and this will be our last passage. Listen to how the Lord is present and sufficient to help us. Hebrews 13, 5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. He's going to never leave us. Paul learned that. The Lord helped him to be content. Even when he's in prison, when he writes Philippians, he's in prison, not sure if he's going to face execution. Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul says he learned this. Romans 7, he says he learned from coveting at what a sinner he was, but he later in life learned how to be content in every situation. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. One translation has the secret of being content. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes that verse is quoted out of context. It's it's not really primarily talking about physical things. It's, it's in the context of, I can be content in all things through Christ's strength. I can go through whatever he and his sovereignty brings my way because he is going to strengthen me. For whatever that is, it's his strengthening, his sufficiency. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We are nothing impressive to him spiritually on our own, but in him, we have everything we need. There's a whole book on verse 11 by Jeremiah Burroughs, he wrote in 1642, it's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you want to study this subject further, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs, he's talking about this is a, a rare thing. This isn't automatic for Christians. 
He calls this contentment a sufficient portion between Christ and my soul abundantly to satisfy me in every condition. Christian contentment, he defines as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And and, and he nails it because he talks about when we're complaining, we're ultimately saying, God, you don't have it right. You, you aren't giving me what I need. And he says to complainers, will you be above God? Is this not God's hand and must your will be regarded more than his? Keep under the sovereignty of God, the power of God that he has over you. But also he says you need to believe the goodness of God. He says, name any affliction that is upon you. There is a sea of mercy to swallow it up. He talks about how if you've got this pail of water and you spill it in your house, it's going to make quite a, much of a, a mess and you can see it. But he says you take that same pail of water and you throw it into the ocean, you're not going to see it anymore. It's gone. It's been swallowed up. And he says there is a sea of mercy for any affliction we have. We, they, they, we think they're much. We see them in our life and in our house. But if we will take those and cast them upon the all-sufficient Endless, steadfast love of the Lord. They vanish. They're nothing in comparison to him. He says the, the, the word of God offers for you a way full of comfort and peace, content lives in the midst of all the storms and tempests of the world. He says there is an ark that you may come into, and no one in the world knows such contentment as those who come into Christ and so I want to urge you to come to Christ as the only one who is sufficient to save. Confess your coveting heart and confess him as Lord and Savior. Trust in him. If you need help doing that, brother or sister would love to talk with you and pray with you about how you can know him as your Lord and Savior. We all need to come to Christ as the only one who can satisfy our souls. Amen. Amen. Let me... We pray for his help. Our great and gracious God, we thank you for your sea of mercies. We thank you for the blessing that we have in Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing and riches in the heavenly places. We have an inheritance beyond this life that we can only imagine. But Lord, I pray that you would help us now to be changed and to grow and pursue seeking you first and growing in our contentment. We pray all these things in the grace of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.